Welcome back to Gal on the Go Unplugged. My guest today is Catherine Mattis, founder and CEO of Civility Partners, a consulting firm focused on helping organizations create respectful workplace environments and specializing in turning around toxic cultures. Civility Partners clients include Fortune 500s and small businesses across many industries. Catherine is a TEDx speaker and an HR thought leader who has appeared as an expert on many news outlets, including Bloomberg, CNN, NPR, and more. In addition, she has 53 courses reaching global audiences on LinkedIn Learning. Hi, Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on Unplugged today. I know you have like a wealth of knowledge to share. So let's get right into our conversation. Like I mentioned, your company is Civility Partners and they specialize in effectively turning around toxic cultures. Can you share please some ways you help organizations create respectful workplace cultures? Sure. I'll start with the most interesting thing that we do, at least I find when I'm talking to people. Uh, So I and some of my team members specialize in executive coaching only for leaders who engage in toxic behaviors. So I kind of joke, I don't coach normal, I say with air quotes, uh, leaders. I coach leaders who have either been accused of creating a hostile work environment or, uh, you know, just they're getting a lot of complaints about their behavior coming into HR or what have you. So that's one way we turn around toxic behavior and cultures. The other versions of what we do are more company-wide. So we do workforce surveys. They're called climate assessments when you're measuring culture. You know, so we get the call from a CEO that they're wondering what's going on. They have high turnover or something's happening. We do an assessment to understand what's wrong, what the employees need. And then second, from there, we take all that data and work with the organization to come up with a plan to make change so that the next time we do the survey, we can really show that that the organization has made quite a bit of change in its culture. And then lastly, of course, we do lots of training programs uh, and we we do very systemic training where there's a lot more than just, you know, coming in and doing a training and exiting. We're doing big programs that are meant to overhaul the way people behave. I love it. Well, you know, I want to say that I'm not liking these toxic people, but then I'm kind of torn because then I hear that they're reaching out to you to try to change that behavior. It makes it difficult. Yeah, well, you know, we we villainize toxic people a lot. But what I've learned in coaching is they honestly don't realize the impact that they're having on people. And so, yeah, sometimes it's intentional, but most of the time it's not. And that's where coaching comes in, helping them create self-awareness, recognize that their habits need to change. So they're not bad people. I think that's a super compassionate attitude that you have. That makes me wonder, like, this is a perfect tie-in to, like, what motivates you then to choose bullying in the workplace as your mission in life? 
Yeah, so I have a story. I was the director of HR. I was internal and uh, found myself working with another director who was, I would say, a bully. He was really frustrating to work with. Uh, I, as HR, was dealing with a lot of the problems that he was creating, and I also felt picked on. I was definitely being bullied myself, I felt. Um, And while I was working there, I started getting my master's degree in communication. And basically, my subject matter was human communication in the workplace. My very first class, my very first semester was called The Dark Side of Communication. And uh, it was about, you know, dark human interactions, domestic violence, stalking, these types of topics. And I had to, of course, write a paper on some sort of dark side of human communication, and it made sense to write it about this person. So I started researching what's happening at work through academic lens to write my paper for my first class in grad school and ended up coming across the phrase workplace bullying and realizing that was a thing. And that's what I was going through and uh, was just obsessed with it. I spent all of graduate school focusing all of my research, no matter what the class, my paper was on workplace bullying. I wrote my thesis on bullying and I kind of joke, I have a master's degree in workplace bullying. That's fascinating though. I love it. Thank you. (laughs) That's so cool that, I mean, like, unfortunately that you recognized you were in that situation, but that you took it as like a positive and then thought, okay, I'm going to immerse myself in learning everything about it. Now, did you have to change the names to protect the not so innocent, I guess? Yes. Yeah. So you studied it in grad school and were applying your situation. And then, you know, after grad school out into the world with corporations and stuff. So what changes have you observed in bullying for better or for worse? You know, I think bullying's always been the same. Like if you read an academic research article from 20 years ago or even 40 years ago, which by the way, there is a ton of research from around the world for many years. If you read that research and the research now, there isn't a lot of differences in kind of how it unfolds or what it is. Really what's changed is the organizations paying more attention to it. So I, when I got out of graduate school, I started Civility Partners and was telling people, you know, I'm starting this business around solving bullying. And literally everybody I knew told me that that was a mistake. Bullying's not a thing. How would I get clients if nobody knows what it is? And I just really stuck to my guns of like, I know it exists and I know there's a phrase for it. And so when I would do speaking engagements back then, I mean, this was 14, 15 years ago, I would do a speaking engagement and I always had people coming up to me after realize, like telling me, you helped me realize that I was bullied at this job I had before, or I'm being bullied now, or I was a bully at some point. And it was like these light bulbs turning on all the time. Fast forward to now, those types of conversations don't happen as often. You know, in California, for example, where I live, we have a a requirement in our law that when you do your sexual harassment prevention training, you include bullying as part of that training. And, you know, it's it's something that organizations aren't so shocked to hear about or talk about anymore, especially now we've had Black Lives Matter and Me Too. And so, like, the idea that human or adults are toxic to each other is more realistic for people now. You know, do you know what I mean? Like we've always been mean to each other at work. Whereas before it was such a shock to people. 
That's wild. I'm I'm so impressed that you had that like gut instinct and you stuck with it and you didn't let people sway you like you felt it was that um, important that you stay the path and that you even took it further and opened up your own company, you know, based on the topic matter. That's pretty bold. Thank you. And how wild of a journey that is that you were ahead of it. And it's like sad to hear that you say that people were like, oh, you influenced me. And I, I heard like myself being either bullied or being the bully. It's like sad and happy at the same time, you know, I'm sure to hear those kinds of comments. You know, it, it was because I mean, in the old days, when I would be when I would write blogs or anything I was doing, a lot of what I was talking about was like, we need to give people the vernacular to talk about something that they don't have the vernacular for. And yeah, it was just like people's relief that they weren't crazy and that there is a thing and it's called workplace bullying and that they fit in that. It's interesting how humans like we do, we need words to understand things. It's like you gave them a feeling of justification. Yeah. Like I'm not crazy. That does happen. And it wasn't just me. People around the world have this happen to them. So yeah, it was interesting. Now, because you were a pioneer in this field, and as you said, you know, it's become more common, like that is known, right? Like, so with Black Lives Matter and such, do you ever feel like this is temporary in the moment and we might go back to our old ways? Or do you feel like kind of we're in a good place and we'll hopefully at least maintain, if not move forward? Yeah, I suspect like anything that We'll always be moving forward, but it won't always, you know, it's never going to be a straight trajectory. I mean, if you think about something like Civil Rights Act, you know, which is supposed to make work fair, that passed in the 60s. And here we are all of these years later. Have we made improvement from the Civil Rights Act being passed? Yes. Do we have a long way to go? Yes. And so I think it's the same thing. I, I think also with the younger generation growing up, I mean, you know, people our age, we didn't grow up with big conversations about bullying at school. And I think part of what got workplace bullying some attention was, I don't know if you remember, but kind of back in like, I want to say like 2013 or so, there was a lot of conversation around bullying in schools and lots of kids committing suicide because they were bullied and all of that. And so that got a lot of attention. So I think the kid, the younger generation that's growing up with more clear lessons around bullying and emotional intelligence and all of that, the, I don't, I think as they get into the workplace, the culture will continue to shift in the right direction where they're not going to tolerate bullying the way that, you know, previous generations had, for example, they'll just go somewhere else. And the internet makes it possible to find a job anywhere, especially now that we're all able to work remotely. So I think we have a long way to go. I think we'll probably take some steps back, but in the end, we'll always move forward. You know, to your point, I was brought up in that time period where you just didn't talk about things like if you got bullied, you held it inside and didn't share that with anyone. So yeah, opening up that conversation is really huge to the point you made in moving towards that progress. The younger generations now, I think there's a lot of hope in that aspect alone. The fact that they're more free and open to communicating that. Yeah, I'm holding them accountable. They have to they have to help us change because us adults currently, yeah. 
Well, you wrote an award-winning book called Back Off, Your Kick-Ass Guide to Ending Bullying at Work. And I love that title, by the way. I think that title is kick-ass. Thank you. Uh, It was acclaimed as the most comprehensive and valuable handbook on the topic. Can you please share, you know, a memorable success story where one of your readers applied your principles from your book and shared that with you? So I haven't gotten a lot of feedback of like, hey, I did this thing and it really worked. I would say as the author of that book, the the biggest for me, the are the most important piece is I there's a worksheet in there that's several pages long. Before you go to talk to HR about being bullied, I think filling out that worksheet is super important. So it's really a lot of self-reflection around what do I want to have happen in going to have this conversation? What are my boundaries if they don't agree to do the things that I need? Am I prepared to quit my job over this? And so it's a lot of real self-reflection for them to be mentally prepared to go. And it's got, you know, checklists of like, what should you bring to HR when you go? Bring your emails and anything you can to sort of prove that this behavior is happening. I unfortunately don't have a super success. Like there isn't anybody that's read the book and been like, I did everything you did and it all went away. And the problem is that even though there's a lot more attention on this, it's still the the narrative is that people are allowed to act this way at work. And there's no guarantee that when you talk about it with your leadership or HR, that they're going to say, thanks for letting me know we're going to solve this problem, you know? Um, and unfortunately, people who engage in bullying behavior are often super high performers. And so there is this divide here. The narrative when clients call me is usually HR has been com- getting complaint and telling the C-suite, I need you to, we got to address this. We got to address this. We got to address And the C-suite's been saying, don't you dare touch it. That person's very valuable. Leave it be. And then when they call me, there's been some sort of catalyst that caused the C-suite to finally go, okay, HR, yes, solve the problem. I will give you some resources. So yeah, unfortunately, it's a, a bully's world versus the target. That's so sad because, you know, that person obviously feels helpless and and because the bad person is a high producer, basically they're getting away with you know, things. And I'm sure they're fully aware of it themselves. They have that kind of protection to your point. But I would like to hope that your worksheet, you know, based on what I have learned about your worksheet has got to offer a sense of comfort to people because they probably feel so lost. Like I'm in this bullying situation. I don't know where to begin. What do I do? So at least your worksheet provides like some comfort and guidance on if they do feel empowered enough to go forward, like these are trusted things that they can do instead of feeling like kind of alone and lost on how to proceed. Yeah. Yeah. See, it is a kick-ass book. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I wrote it because I was in HR, right? I was the HR person getting those complaints and telling my leader and my leader was telling me, let it go leave it be. I don't, you know, I would say, look, now I have to hire yet another person in his department because somebody left and he'd be like, well, you know, there, that's fine. And just, so I kind of wrote it from that position of like, I've been in HR's position. So I'm going to try to tell you as much as I can in terms of navigating that and trying to think of all the things that 
if I had had as the HR representative, maybe I could have made a difference. So yeah, it's really written from this place of like, I have all this academic knowledge, personal knowledge, and I'm an HR professional. <laughs> so that's the best combination of knowledge that you can have. And to like carry it forward, that's just awesome. Okay, so your team customizes and programs to reduce employee turnover, increase engagement, improve profitability. Those are just a few of the things. Do you find that this resonates with large companies and small companies, both but in different ways? The challenge with all size companies and that any HR professional really struggles with is proving that something like psychological safety has a business outcome, right? How do you, we all know in theory, and there's a ton of research that says, you know, if I feel psychologically safe, I'm more willing to learn. I'm more willing to be innovative. I'm more willing to share crazy ideas that just might work. Um, I'm more willing to make suggestions, challenge the status quo because I feel safe to do that. Are there a ton of case studies that can then say, well, when your employees do that, your company earns X more revenue? Not really. And so we do try to do that client by client where we'll talk to the C-suite about like what measurements of success do you have in mind? What are what are the ways that we could measure our success with you? Obviously, we have our own ideas like the survey. If, you know, people like one of our survey questions is, will you do you t- intend on leaving in the next? And then it's like, choose from six months, a year, or five years. Um, so when when we can show like, hey, people aren't thinking about leaving, there's a k- kind of an ROI there, but not really. So yeah, I, I would say it's not necessarily the size of the company. It's more the CEO's leadership qualities. For, you know, Some CEOs are like, yeah, we can't have bad behavior, fix it. And others are more like, it's fine if people come and go, what's the ROI? You know, so we try to try to meet clients where they are. <laughs> uh, I like the ones that are wanting to fix it. <laughs> Those are the kind I like. <laughs> yeah, I always joke, I shouldn't have a job. Why do I have a job? Why does civility partners exist? But it's because there's plenty of CEOs who are focused on the bottom line, which I get. I'm a CEO too, but not at the expense of people and their emotional safety, you know? And that's a key, huge difference. Yeah. Now you dropped the term um, psychological safety. And can you please just explain to listeners what you mean by psychological safety? Yeah, it's kind of a new phrase that we've been using. Um, So psychological safety is feeling free to be your true self at work. That's the definition. And then kind of what that translates to is uh, if I'm free to be my whole self, that I would feel comfortable talking to people about my partners, whether I'm gay or not, or my pronouns or experiences I've had as a woman, or if I was a person of color, or um, if I had a disability, that I would be feel, feel free to talk about it and, and comfortable to ask people to make accommodations for that disability and that sort of thing. So it's really this piece of bringing your whole self to work and being comfortable to be you. And then the other side of that, or the second piece is that when you're feeling comfortable to be your whole self, um, again, there's those business outcomes that I, then you can be more innovative, ask questions, challenge. So, you know, a lot of companies are doing things, especially since Black Lives Matter around inclusivity, and um, we want our our workforce to be diverse. 
And that's fine. You can bring in diversity. But if all of these diverse people don't feel comfortable to share their real experiences as humans, then it's kind of all for naught, right? So absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for sharing about that, because I feel like psychological safety is obviously a crucial element. It would be a shame for anyone to walk into a job where you spend hours in a bulk of your life and not feel any kind of psychological safety of any kind. So thank you for that. Yeah, I'll just add, you know, so a little off topic, but on this on this subject, while I have everyone's ear, you know, I, I think kind of going back to the stuff around what shifted over time and bullying, the ability to be emotional at work and vulnerable at work has never been in existence as much as it is right now. And even right now, it's really not that much not you know we've creeped a little bit but until everyone feels comfortable to cry talk about some crappy argument they had this morning you know and like that old saying like leave your personal stuff at the door we're the same person all the time so yeah i could have a fight with a spouse for example and come to work and keep it to myself and i'm not suggesting companies like you know, let's all open up and just talk about our crappy stuff happening all the time. Like, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I just to be clear, but if I have a crappy, you know, argument, I'm angry with my child or my spouse or whatever. And then I walk into work, I'm not leaving that at the door. Sorry, I'm a person. And so giving space for people to say, you know what, I need an hour off. I got to go for a walk. I'll be back. Or, you know, I'm going to leave early because I need to process or, you know, just like acknowledgement that we have stuff outside at work and, and it is okay to cry. I cry in front of my team for many reasons, sometimes because I'm happy, sometimes I'm frustrated. (laughs) Yeah. So I just, on that note around this phrase, psychological safety, that until we shift away from you're somebody at home and you're somebody different at work we're never really going to have psychological safety. I love that you brought up that mentality because even though we're not AI robots yet, (laughs) you know, I I think that you're right. You know, we, we were pretty much taught to be faucets that turn on and off, uh, you know, in different scenarios in our lives. And that's just not like human-like. And I, I feel like when we do that, to your point, it just causes more problems when you're asking people to suppress and not be who they are genuinely. Yeah. Okay. So you have all these cool tools that you have developed. Um, one of them is your 30 ways to bring your core values to life. Can you please share three of the key values that no company should do without? That's hard to say because I have a reason. I feel like a lot of companies have a lot of the same values. It's just how you word them. So for example, pretty much every company has like innovation in some way, shape or form in their core values. Every company has respect or kindness or customer service somewhere in their core values. So I I don't think I could say, I mean, every core value or every company should have something around integrity and authenticity but then that then we're back to psychological safety. So I, in, instead of answering your question, I'm going to give a different answer, <laughs> which is every company needs to have core values. And no matter how similar all of our core values are as companies, because we're all we all need people to act similarly, we all need people to be excellent and be authentic and have customer service. 
Um, how you word the core values is what matters. So we have a client right now, for example, one of their core values is excellence. Well, what the heck does that even mean? Are we talking about excellence with clients, excellence at work? By the way, I can't be excellent if you don't make let allow room for me to be a person and I'm supposed to leave my stuff at the door, right? So that's a great example of a not not a good core value because you got to if that's a company core value, you really got to ask yourself what exactly does that mean and what do we owe to employees so they can be that core value we're saying they need to be. Such an excellent point. And I, I'm ashamed I didn't, you know, think of that. The fact that, of course, they're all putting out core values, but they're just words unless there's mindfulness that's put behind them, you know. And I'm sure, um, you know, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, that like all the companies are putting out the buzzwords that they feel they should be putting out. Mm -hmm. But to your point, what do they stand behind and what do they mean to the specific company in the terms of, the ways they're using those things, the words that they're putting out there. Yeah. And that's, so that's one of the things we do. We come into companies and it's like, let's look at the core values you have. What do they mean to, to everyone? And we do this anonymous voting stuff. And through that process, we collect information like that. Like, Here's another example. We had a client where um, the CEO had created these four core values, one of which clearly was his favorite, which was part of my French gets shit done. Uh, he loved that core value and he was not happy when we were saying we're going to come in and do this exercise around core values. And so then when we ask people anonymously to share what they think that means, the answers varied. On one end of the spectrum, it was like, it means you get shit done. You come in, you figure it out, and you pass it along to the next cog on the wheel. For others, it was ask around, collaborate, get the right answers. So kind of like this extra get shit done correctly was kind of the other end of the spectrum. And so what? which one? you know, which one's the right one. So through those exercises, we can create some conversation and sort of define a core value in a way that makes sense for everyone. That's true. Because if it's so generic and it's up to interpretation of people that come from all different backgrounds, of course, they're going to have their own like meaning that they tie to it. So, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. And then we're back to the organization's participation, right? Because then the organization has to say, well, if we want people to get shit done, we have to make sure our processes are on point. We have to be willing to spend resources to help people learn how to get it done correctly. Our onboarding program has to be good. So that's the other thing we see a lot where core values aren't, it's like, they're just words and they're not being lived. But really my advice is like, have your core values. You should have no more than five. And then you have definitions of the behavior of individuals. So every individual who works there has their kind of description of what it means for them as a person. And then the other layer of that is what does the organization do in line with those core values? And what does the organization do to ensure the individuals can be the things that the organization is asking them to be? To that point, okay, so you could only do what you can do, right? Like you're coming in there to provide a service to turn things around in a positive way. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, provide the advice and the guidance of things that steps that should be taken, things to be done, 
and they don't listen to it. Let's say the higher up, uh, like, uh, it seems like they're on board with it and then like is kind of like closed off by the end of the process. Mm-hmm. How does that feel to you? Like uh, that must be tough to then like walk away from that situation, knowing like you were trying to help and let's say it's for nothing or does that not really happen often in the scenarios? It never happens. Everyone listens to everything I say. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a uh, fairy tale ending, I think. I would say um it does happen sometimes, of course. And but you know, over time it's taken some getting used to. I used to take it really personally, like what's wrong with me that they're not listening. And now I've just learned uh, some of it is learning to re work the way I work with companies. So we do a lot more at the front end around making sure we have buy-in before we even start because I don't want to get halfway through it and realize I don't actually have the buy-in I thought I had. But yeah, we've we've had mutual breakups with clients or been let go because the CEO is just like, I'm not buying what you're selling. It feels too fluffy for me. You know, that's the the CEO that really wants the ROI in the business case. I've had clients where, I mean, one specifically, I basically told them I've done everything I possibly can. And really the only things left to fix is you, CEO. I said it a lot nicer, but it was like, I've done all the things, everything I could possibly do like organizationally to make this culture better, but we're still not seeing all the change that we need to see. And that that was a real eye-opening client that I as much as I thought I could maybe make positive change, you know, or push the needle towards more positive without the CEO doing the things that I needed him to do. After a while, it just became clear that, yeah, he he needed to change the way he led. But I mean, we we left it more positive than it was. And I don't take it personally anymore. It's like, and I have to realize like, as much as I want to help the employees, sometimes it's hard to be like, uh, we're trying to help them. We've heard their stories and how sad and upset they are through our surveys and interviews. Like we know they hate it there, but sometimes we have to just say, well, in the end, they choose to go there every day and we can't save them. And hopefully they'll save themselves, you know, and hopefully they'll just take it with them when and if they decide to move forward, you know, or even if they become leaders themselves, they'll take all the great things that you taught them and they'll be that much better to another team of people. Right, exactly. You know, with the age of social media's competitive keeping up culture, you know, there's so much pressure. Everyone's always talking about the pressure of social social media and the culture. Do you believe that there is a more increased need to promote civility and not just the workplace, but incorporate it into social media that, of course, then weaves itself into other areas of life? I do. I absolutely do. I I hope organizations feel the pressure. Um, You know, there's a phrase employer branding, which is kind of like the employ- the way an employer markets themselves to potential and current employees. So smart employers recognize that their glass door reviews need to look good, that they need people to be talking about them on social media, that if a potential candidate searches them, they'll find good news, not ugly news. So, and then, yeah, as people, I think we all you know, we all need to be kinder and social media really opens the door for rudeness because 
I can say, fire off some sort of nasty gram social media post to somebody, you know, our brain just doesn't compute that there's a person on the other end of that. Um, And so we definitely tend to be a lot meaner and say things over, you know, online that we wouldn't actually say in person. Quick example, I was in a pretty serious accident and it was covered on the news here locally. And the things that people said in the comments on the news story, they would never say to me in person. I mean, they were saying like, she's so stupid. She doesn't, shouldn't be on this planet. I, I, she should have died. I mean, just like crazy. Oh my gosh. That's horrific. Yeah. And you know, those people aren't going around saying that all the time to everybody around them, but they said it because I was an anonymous person. They read a story. They, for whatever reason, got fired up. But yes, we need to recognize how little our brain connects to like computer to the person on the other end. If you wouldn't say it to someone's face, don't say it online. Do you think that that policy now, social media, of course, it used to be more personal, right? But these days, I think we could throw that out the window and say that social media is so immersive. It, you know, there's a lot of companies have social media and products and services. So it's not like the more narrow personalized space it used to be. Do you think there's anything we can like do to move towards the direction that you're talking about? Like from a more base level, maybe before it gets to a different point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think orga- you know organizations have their social media policies. You can't prohibit somebody from talking about how crappy or good it is to work at your organization, but an organization or an employer can be held accountable for things like sexual harassment that happen after hours online. So if I'm sexually harassing someone over Facebook. My employer is responsible for that because our relationship is employed, you know, within the employer. So I think not just have a, having a policy that protects an organization, but doing a lot of training and talking about social media and, you know, hey, if you're all going to be friends on social media, let's talk about some right and wrong ways to do that. And I, I do believe that organizations are really focused on policy a lot as if that's going to solve something, but it's not. You know, what needs to happen is for a manager to say, hey, we're all friends on Facebook. Let's talk about what would be appropriate and not appropriate. And, you know, in the back of that manager's head, they're thinking, I can't force people to comply with this conversation. But People, you know, there's like you can create social pressure around kindness and altruism and, you know, respect. And if you can, so employers and managers have to be taught how to proactively focus on respect all day, every day, instead of just focusing on it when something happens, you know, because what happens? We never talk about social media. And then all of a sudden, Bob and Jane have some sort of social media kerfuffle. And now we're talking about it and like, let's not do it that way. It's always reactive. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you foresee that then being incorporated into orientations, like when new employees start at companies or some sort of like part of that annual when you do those tests about like, you know, security and. Yeah, I think it should be an onboarding. I think, I mean, and then we're back to the core values. If one of the core values is something around whatever it is, excellence, integrity, customer service, whatever your core values are, tying actual behaviors to those core values. So then you start again, creating that social pressure 
And it has to be there all the time. So during interviews, you need to ask you know, potential candidates about the core values, how they live those core values. You could even ask, you know, when you think about social media and these core values, you know, let's talk about that. Um, and then in onboarding, once the person's hired, you talk about it and you just talk about it all the time. And then so the organization starts to get to define, here's what it means to live these core values. And maybe we can't always hold people accountable to a policy like, you know, social media. People can say what they want to say on social media, but that we can, you know, teach people what it means to live these three or five core values and then start to, by doing that actively, start sort of keeping people in line versus doing it through a, a policy. I like that. That makes lots of sense. So you're being consistent and you're weaving it into like everything. So it's not so like oddly siloed and they forget about it. Exactly. Practical application. Yeah. Yeah. You, your company offers lots of great services like climate assessment, coaching, abrasive leaders, culture change, consulting. What service is most sought after by your clients or what is one of the services that you're like most proud of? You know, I would say we're at about 30%, 30% or 33% for the coaching and the training. And then that whole, you know, kind of climate assessment consulting piece. I'm most proud of a lot of our case studies. If you look on our website, you can see like, here's what the data showed before and here's what it showed after, after we worked in that client. So we'll have a lot of proud moments there. Um, and then, I mean, honestly, I, I kind of say if I were to shut civility partners down and go just solopreneur, uh, which is not happening anytime soon, but if I did that, it would be coaching. It's pretty neat to coach somebody and watch them transform over time. Could you share, to your point, one of those successful case studies with us? Yeah, sure. So I'll share one example, Mercedes. She's on my website. Um, you know, so when I coach, I meet with the individual. I get some names of people I can interview so that I can find out how they're perceived. And then we use that data for coaching. So for example, Mercedes, people talked a lot about how that she was passionate. That was the rate, the phrase that everybody, the euphemism of for her when what people were really saying was that she would kind of like slam her fist on her hand or she she just had kind of this aggressive body language that was just her passion because she was very passionate about the organization. So then helping her recognize that, hey, you're passionate. We get that. And that's why you're here and why the company loves you. But here's here's the impact it has. And so you got to shift your passion from why are you doing it the way I said to let me help you learn so that you can do it the way it needs to be done moving forward. And yeah, so then I re-interview everyone after about four or five months of coaching and just to have everyone, you know, come back and say, she's much more approachable. I'm okay approaching her now. I, I feel okay asking questions and I'm not going to get yelled at. She's not calling people out in public anymore for mistakes and like, um, so she was one of my definitely star students in terms of doing a real 180. They don't, not all, most of them don't do a full 180, but she did. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. I am very grateful that someone like you exists and is providing a service like positive in the world like this, because I, I think a lot of times, you know, you made me realize that we're so quick to judge that someone's being like nasty, but they, it's might not 
be to their fault. They just need some guidance on adjusting like their attitude and their behavior. Yeah. It's uh, amazing that someone like you is around to help with that. So, well, thank you. Thank you. We're very passionate about what we do. To learn more about Catherine, visit her IG page at Civility Partners and her company's website, www.civilitypartners.com. These details are also in the Gal on the Go Unplugged show notes. Thank you for taking the time to unplug with me today, Catherine. Thank you. And to my listeners, remember, be curious, be kind, and be bold.